We begin this series, a series that we are calling Exodus, how God draws us out to draw us in. Our goal is to teach about the Exodus that Israel went through. The, the first several chapters we're going to deal with here uh, in this series about this Exodus that Israel went through. But what we want to do is we want to understand that in God's word, the New Testament writers, they are going to use the language and the pictures of the Exodus to demonstrate the greatest Exodus. We're going to begin that today, and I hope that you will see not only the story of the Exodus and how glorious God is in bringing the people of Israel out, but you will also see how the New Testament writers use this to talk about the final Exodus. In our time this morning, we'll begin by looking at the oppression that Egypt put the people of Israel through. And then we will look at the oppression that the whole world is under due to sin. So if you haven't already, please turn to Exodus chapter 1. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read each section, and then we'll talk about each section instead of reading it all at one time. So I'm going to read the first seven verses first, and then we'll get into these here. It says, These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, and Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all the generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. There is probably not anything more boring to Bible readers than genealogies, right? I mean, we're tempted when we're reading through Scripture, we're tempted to get to the genealogies and just be like, like God didn't see it, maybe, you know, like we flipped the page real fast and God didn't see that we skipped it. But, but what we need to understand is, if God's word, if all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for us, then there's reasons why these genealogies are here. And to skip them and to not try to, to wrestle with why they're there, I think is foolish on our part. I think we need to wrestle with why these genealogies are here. Now, this little prologue that we have in our text here, these seven verses, they really have a twofold purpose. Okay? First, it is a link between Genesis and Exodus. These seven verses are linking the book that came before it with the narrative that we're going to read following. The truth is, if you don't have any knowledge of Genesis, then when you get to Exodus, you're not going to understand what's going on. I mean, the, here, the reality is, we learn in Genesis that Israel is the name that was given to Jacob. That Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers before becoming prime minister of Egypt. It also speaks of a great famine that led the sons of Israel 
to Egypt. So if, if, if we don't know that that all happened in Genesis, well, then we get to these verses where it says the sons of the name of Israel. And we're like, who's Israel? Who are these sons? Why are they in Egypt? Like, what, what is the, the purpose of that? So this prologue is letting us know, you need to know what comes before. You need to be able to pull that in so that this story makes sense. It links Genesis to Exodus. But it also sets the stage for the entire Exodus story. We are told that the descendants of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, were 70 persons. Now, this, is, this means one of two things, okay? Theologians wrestle with this. It either means there were literally only 70 of them that came to Egypt when the famine happened, right, and lived there. Or that these 70 were the name of the, all of the men, that it was the 12 sons, their sons, who were probably all adults at this point, okay? So their sons and the, the 12, that those were the 70. And then in verse 1, it says, each with their household. So the 12 have their sons, all the adult males, and their households came. Right. And so you try to start guesstimating about how many people you think that would be somewhere in the range of maybe two to three thousand people. So either it's 70 people exactly or these are 70, uh, the 70 men and their households that came. And we're roughly talking about two to three thousand people that ultimately came and lived in Egypt. But notice what we have in verse seven. Either from the 70 or the two thousand we are told that this group becomes fruitful, increases greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. The word filled, that Hebrew word, could literally be translated swarm. The land was swarming with them. Right. So that gives you a visual. Right. Because you think of like insects or 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 uh, some kind of species that swarms. And so that gives us this visual. Israel comes and with 70 or 2000, they come to this area. They they settle in this area and they become they become swarming in growth over this entire the entire fertile area that they have settled in. And by the time you get to Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, when Israel finally leaves Egypt, the Bible says there are 600,000 able-bodied men and their household. We're talking over 2 million people. So from 70 people, or at most 2,000 people, they grow to 2 million people. You see why this is also setting the stage for the Exodus? It's not this pro, these seven verses are not just linking Genesis to Exodus, though that is so vitally important, but it's also setting the stage for where we're going to go. Why we're going to see what we're going to see over just this chapter. So we have a tendency to skip over the names, not think they're really important, and I think that is... A failure on our part. And I want to say something about this growth that is vitally important. 
Israel's population growth was seen as a divine blessing by Israel, or by God. It was seen as obedience to the directive that God gave at the beginning of Genesis, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Well, the Hebrews were being fruitful and multiplying. But this, this fruitful and multiplying was seen by Israel as a blessing from God. Okay? They viewed this growth, this swarming, this growth politically, economically, culturally, with resources and everything. They saw all this as a blessing from God. Now we've set the stage. We see the vital text for where we're going to go next. And now we're introduced to a king. Look at verses 8 through 10. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. These verses are where really the narrative of the Exodus begins. Here we read that there is a king who is now in charge of Egypt during the Exodus. We, are now, we now read about the king that's going to be in charge during this entire story. And we find out a few things about the king that I want to point out. A few things that I think are noteworthy. I, I, I'm going to give us four. Um, I think there's more, but I want to give us four. Number one, he is a king. Now, you may read that where it says he is a king. And you, you may think, wow, deep point number one, Neil. He's a king. But I put in bold, he is a king. For a reason. We're not given his name. We're not told who he is. In fact, in this story, he is, he is basically a nameless non-entity. Oh, he's got a role to play, but he ain't the main character of this story. He is a king. This is in marked contrast with the name that we're going to find out about in just a few chapters. A king who is named Yahweh. This king doesn't get a name. Doesn't even get a name. He's just the king of Egypt. We're given the personal name of the king of kings, Yahweh. We're given his personal name. So you know what this sets up right at the very beginning? Who the protagonist is of this story. Who the hero is of this story. Who this story is about. And it's not the king of Egypt. It is about Yahweh. Number two. He's a new king. He's not just a king, but he is a new king. And, and here's why this is important. I don't think this just means he was the son of the former king. I think in the language what this means is that this is probably a new dynasty that has taken place. 
So this is a new Egyptian dynasty. We're, we're, we're kind of starting a new thing here with this man. He's not simply the son of the former Pharaoh. He is now starting this brand new dynasty. Which also means that he follows different principles of government and he's going to rule differently. The dynasty that came before him, they ruled one way. This is a new king. This is a new way of ruling. This is a new dynasty. This is a new way of doing government. That's going to be very important moving forward. Very important moving forward. Number three, he's a king that did not know Joseph. He's a king that did not know Joseph. Now, why would this new dynasty, this new king of this dynasty, not know who Joseph is? Willful ignorance. He didn't didn't care to know who Joseph was. He didn't care about his predecessors. He didn't care about the way they did things. He didn't care about their history. He didn't care about the story. This is my dynasty. I'm the new king. I'm what matters here. And he didn't know Joseph. He didn't know the history of what Joseph did for Israel. He didn't know that there, I mean, for Egypt. He didn't know there would be no Egypt without Joseph. You see, he's setting himself up right at the very beginning as being the hero of this story. He's setting himself up to be the protagonist of this story. He's setting himself up to be the one that this story is all about. But he's just a king. But he's a king that didn't know Joseph. And then number four, he's a worried king. This new king who did not know Joseph told his people that Israel is too many and too mighty. He's starting to get a little worried. You ever notice, and this is true about rulers in general, you ever notice how the insecure, usually men, the insecure men that rule and reign, they present themselves as so tough, present themselves as, as, you know, these authority figures that don't take, have you ever noticed that they're the most insecure ones? They're always looking over the shoulder about who's trying to get them and where they're trying to come from, who's going to stab me in the back, who's going to try to get me. They're insecure all the time. That's how this king was. We're going to find out this is a prideful, arrogant, wicked king. And he's going to set himself up as this authority figure, but this is a paranoid, worried king. And he is worried about Israel. He says they're too many and too mighty. Now, I don't think this means that there's more people in Israel than Egypt. I don't think it means that if if they went to war just Israel against Egypt, that Egypt wouldn't kill them. But what he's worried about is what happens if one of our enemies attacks us and Israel joins with them? Not only could we lose the fight, we're going to lose them. He didn't want to lose them. They were an economic asset for him. It was good that these, maybe at this point, over a million people are here in in our country. This is a good thing. Economically, culturally, their resources, it's good for them to be here, but they're a threat to us. And I don't want to lose them. Right? If, if 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 they go away, they're no longer a threat. But that also means... We lose the resources. 
We, we lose them as an economic asset. By the way, this is the attitude that slavery always has. Slavery in this country was economic. Free labor. It's Black History Month. Learning about what happened in this country and the reasons for the slavery in this country, you know what we find out? That's the reason slavery's always existed. Here, here it was based upon race. Other places it's not based upon race, but it's always economic. It's always free labor. We want the resources. Here, this king doesn't want to lose these people. So you know what he's going to do? He's going to enslave them. This new king didn't want to lose them as an economic asset. So he's going to have to do something about it. Verse 11. We read this. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. We now move to what the king is going to do about this. In light of his fear of losing Israel, he's going to begin oppressing Israel. And it, it's going to come in, in threefold. Let's keep reading in verse 15. It says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Egyptian women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrew, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall not let, you shall let every daughter live. So his first tactic, right? We're going to have to squash Israel from growing, right? The problem is they are growing, they are multiplying, and they are too mighty. And they're going to they turn on us, they can side with our enemies, then we're going to lose them as an asset. We want them here. So... We're going to oppress them with slavery. He set taskmasters over them and ruthlessly made the people work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Historically, do you know what happens during oppression and during slavery? You're not prosperous. The birth rate goes down historically. You get free labor, but you, the birth rate drops. So what he's hoping happens here is we're going to put them in slavery. We're going to oppress them. We're going to work them to the bone. And we hope that that will will begin decreasing the population of these people. 
The plan doesn't work. Verse 12 tells us the more oppression that came on Israel, the more babies they had. This is completely unnatural. This should not be happening. Naturally speaking, this is not the way it works. You don't oppress people and they continue to prosper. But that is exactly what happens here. Why? Because Yahweh is the one who is in charge of this story. Yahweh is the hero of this story. He's the one in charge of this whole thing. So the oppression hits. They enslave these people. They work them bitterly with hard service, making bricks and building buildings. And yet the more they oppress, the more they grow. Goes going against all natural odds. Only the work of Yahweh. So the king has to make another plan. So here's his second attempt. His first attempt fails at stopping the growth of Israel. So Pharaoh moves on to another. It's a more wicked tactic than the first. It's secret infanticide. Verse 15 and 16, we read that Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill all the males that were born in Israel. And this phrase that says, when you see them on the birth stool, this gives us an insight as to what Pharaoh actually wanted. He didn't want them just to blatantly kill these baby boys and make it known that Pharaoh's trying to kill all the baby boys. What he wanted is these midwives to do it in secret. What he wanted was when these when you are on the birth stool, when that woman is giving birth and you're sitting right there and you're the midwife, you're the one that's going to deliver the baby. When you see before anybody else, when you see that this is a baby boy, kill it. I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> she should. Kill it. Then you present that baby to the mother as stillborn. So this was secret infanticide. He is asking these Hebrew women to kill the Hebrew boys secretly and present all of them as stillborn. I'm sorry your son didn't make it, even though they were the ones who probably suffocated that baby or smothered that baby and killed that baby. And the, these midwives said, we ain't doing that. Also funny. King's name, never mentioned, right? These two midwives' names are mentioned. You see, when you follow the hero of the story, you will be glorified. There will be honor that is given to you because you're making sure that you're following the hero of the story, that the true protagonist is the one that you're dedicated to. They did not fear Pharaoh. They feared God. And they were willing to die. Now, they say, listen, I mean, these Hebrew women, they just give birth faster than everybody else. They're not like the Egyptian women take a long time to give birth. We, by the time we get the message that this woman's in labor and when we get there, these babies are born. There's nothing we can do about it. Now, whether they're lying or not, probably lying, but whether they're lying or not, God deals well with them. He names them. He blesses them. He gives them families. Again, notice what's happening. Oppression, trying to stop the growth, and the very opposite thing happens. It says again, the people multiplied 
and grew very strong. God, once again, is preventing the king from getting his way. So then he moves, verse 22, to open infanticide. I tried to kill these baby boys in secret, and I got defied. So we're just going to do this outright and in the open. I want all of my Egyptian families, when you see a baby Hebrew boy, throw it in the Nile River and kill it. If it's one of your slave's children, kill it. If you see that somebody else ain't doing it, get that baby and kill it. Outright open infanticide. You you see the progression? It just gets worse and worse and worse. Now, we are not told explicitly here, but there is great reason to believe that many, if not most of the Egyptians did not follow this order. Because what we know is Israel kept growing. Israel continued to grow. We're not told explicitly the same way we are before because given a, a, a literary technique that's being used, they leave, they're, they're leaving it here. But we know from the rest of the story, they don't kill all the baby boys because everybody, they, they keep growing and having families. They're going to be enslaved for, for a lot longer than this, and they're going to keep growing and keep growing. Let me tell you, you know how one way I know that not everybody's doing this? Because Pharaoh's daughter doesn't even do it. When Pharaoh's daughter, as we're going to see next week, when Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses in the basket, what should she have done? Killed that baby. Pharaoh can't even get his own daughter to obey him. And he thinks he's the the hero of the story. He thinks this story is about him. Now, all of this sets the stage for Moses, which we'll talk about next week. But I want to end by discussing a greater oppression than Egypt. A greater oppression than Egypt. As terrible as the oppression was that Israel experienced at the hands of of the king of Egypt. All of this wickedness was simply a fruit of a greater oppression. Namely, the oppression of the entire human race under sin. Everything that the king was doing was a fruit of a greater oppression. The oppression of sin that rules over the entire human population. Now, I told you that what I want to do this morning is show you how the New Testament writers pick up on the language of Exodus, the story of Exodus, the picture of Exodus, to tell the greater story of Jesus. Now, most of us are familiar with these verses that I'm about to read. But I want you to understand something. These writers, including Jesus, were not using this language by grabbing it out of midair. It's not as if they were like, you know what? I just want to talk about us being slaves of sin and just grabbing that from nowhere. Guess where they were getting this language? From their Old Testament Hebrew Bible. They were using the language of their Old Testament Hebrew Bible to tell the great story, to tell the ultimate story. Jesus in John chapter 8 verse 34 says, all who sin are slaves to sin. Paul states in Romans 6, 20, 
that we were once slaves to sin. Galatians 4.8, Paul states that we were formerly enslaved to those who were not gods. 2 Peter 2.19, Peter calls lost people slaves of corruption. Colossians 1.13, Paul states that we were under the tyranny of the domain of darkness. Church, listen to me. The reason why they use this language is because it is Exodus language. And they saw what Jesus was doing as the new Exodus. They saw the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament as a type, as a picture, as a shadow of the great Exodus that Jesus was going to bring. And so when they use this language of slaves, being enslaved to sin, being under the domain of darkness, they're using this language because it is, it is, they're grabbing it from the Old Testament and they're using it as what Jesus is going to do. And this is going to be clear as we move through the whole story. We're going to see it over and over and over again. How New Testament writers keep referring back and grabbing language from the Exodus to use to refer to Jesus. In fact... Even later Old Testament writers talking about the Messiah, guess what they do? They start talking about the Exodus as something the Messiah is going to do. Well, we know it can't be the first Exodus. So it's a new Exodus. It's a greater Exodus. It is the final Exodus. Now, how is this a greater oppression? How is being a slave to sin, formerly enslaved to those that were not gods, slaves of corruption, and and being under the tyranny of the domain of darkness. How is all of that a greater oppression? I'm going to give you at least three things, but there's way, way more. It applies to the whole human race, not just Jews. It is Jew and Gentile. Before we start looking at the king of Egypt and judging him too harshly, except for the grace of God, you would be the same. The oppression that he was under, sin, caused him to oppress Israel. You're under that same oppression that he was under. And don't think for a second you wouldn't be just like him, except for the grace of God. Jew, Gentile, everyone. Once Adam fell, the entire human race is put under this oppression. We are put under this weight of sin. We all become slaves to it. Obeying the fleshly desires, obeying the carnal mind, obeying the the temptations that we have. We're slaves to it, and, and so we follow it. The second thing I want you to see is this new oppression, this sinful oppression, this greater oppression is a holistic oppression, oppression. It affects the entirety of the human life and experience. There is not one part of the human race that is not fallen. Our hearts, our minds, our wills, our desires, our flesh. Our loves, there is not one part. When, when we talk about total depravity, we're not saying you are as wicked, that all, every human being is as wicked as they could be. What we're saying is that every human being, every part of the human being totally is depraved. Every part of them is now under this oppression. 
So nothing works right in someone who's a slave to sin. Listen to me again. Nothing works right if you are a slave to sin. Third, this oppression results in death to anyone who's enslaved. When we read about the Exodus, the first Exodus, we read about the oppression comes. They try to kill Israel. They don't get it done. They don't get it done. They don't get it done. This greater oppression, everyone who's under it, everyone who is a slave to this greater oppression dies in their sin. No one escapes it. So we can read this Exodus story on so many different levels. We can read this oppression and we can just talk about the wickedness of Pharaoh and God's blessing of Israel in spite of this wickedness and the oppression that they experienced. And we, we can study it at that level and then we would be right to. It's not what the New Testament writers did. They didn't just stop there. They saw this as a story that pointed to Jesus. There's a greater oppression, which means we need a greater deliverer. We need a greater exodus. We need more than just what Israel got. We need a, we need a better covenant. We need better promises. We got to have more. There better be a better deliverer than Moses coming. Because this isn't just freeing people out of a physical enslavement. This is freeing people from their in, the entirety of their person being enslaved to sin. We need a greater deliverance. This morning, whether you're here in this room, you're watching at home, or you're watching this online later, if you have never come into a relationship with Jesus, you are a slave to sin. It oppresses you and you go right along with it. You follow the evil desires of your heart and your mind and you, you go after things you shouldn't go after and you love things you shouldn't love and you desire things you shouldn't desire and you you run after things you shouldn't run and then it, it falls apart and it doesn't work for you and it, it doesn't bring you the life that you want or the satisfaction that you want or the fulfillment that you want and that's because you're a slave to something that can never give you that. And you can never free yourself from it. No matter what you try, no matter how many attempts you make to clean your life up or to, to get sober or to, to, to change your, your addiction or to stop doing this and stop doing that and stop being that. If you simply attempt to do this in your own strength, you will remain a slave. You'll remain under the oppression with no freedom at all. But... If you turn to the hero of the story, if you turn to the protagonist of the story, Jesus, and you humble yourself and say, Jesus, you're going to have to deliver me. You're going to have to free me. 
This oppression is too great. This sin is too strong. I can't do anything about it. But I'm going to surrender to you being my deliverer, to you being the one who will bring me out of this oppression and this slavery. And Jesus made it very clear. Anyone who comes to me, I will never cast them out. There has never been one slave of sin who has been oppressed by this great oppression who has come to Jesus and not been freed. Church, listen to me. There has never in the history of the world never been one person who was bound up in sin where their mind, their heart, their wills, their loves, everything about them was entrapped and enslaved to darkness and the tyranny of the spiritual forces. No one has ever been in that state and looked to Jesus and said, Jesus, deliver me that they haven't been freed. Every single time. And that can be you if it hasn't been you. He delivers all who come to him. So we're all left with two choices. Stay in our sin, stay enslaved, stay oppressed. Or look to the one who freely gives life. And I promise the satisfaction and the freedom and the deliverance and everything that you want only be found in him all you're left with without him is an oppression that you will never be free from